listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 254 of Belaboured, the podcast from Descent Magazine about work, workers, and resistance. I apologize for my croaky voice this week. I am getting over a cold, but I am doing better and I'm going to continue to pour tea on it and struggle through today's episode. Today, we're talking about the union drive at Star Garden, a North Hollywood strip club where the dancers are battling a two-month lockout. Before we get started, though, I want to thank everyone who supported us financially over the past nine years and remind you that we can only keep bringing you the labor journalism you rely on, the interviews with labor leaders and rank and filers, historians and legal experts, with your support. We paywall nothing here because we want to make sure that our podcast is available to the widest possible audience and our paying supporters make that possible. So we thank you very, very much. And if you would like to, you can support us at patreon.com slash belabored. Thank you. And now the news. Chipotle is one of the biggest names in so-called fast casual dining. That's a slightly more upscale version of fast food, featuring customizable burrito bowls and other gentrified versions of Mexican cuisine. Now workers at One Chipotle in Lansing, Michigan, have upgraded their store to a union shop. The workers voted 11-3 to 3 to form the first ever formally unionized Chipotle in the country. They're affiliated with the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, a significant venture into the fast food world for that union. But the organizing effort was spearheaded by just a handful of workers who were frustrated with chronic understaffing and not getting enough work hours to make ends meet. And they just decided to do something about it. I spoke with Samantha Smith, who is one of the original workers who led the union drive at the Lansing store, about their organizing strategies and what their victory means for the industry. She starts by talking about how she came up with the idea with some of her co-workers. Atulia was definitely the first person who had the idea of a union. Without him, I don't think anybody would have ever considered that. And he hung out with Harper a lot, and so did I. So Harper, uh, Atulia asked Harper if I would be interested in sitting down and talking about it with them. And so Atulia came over one day, and he started mentioning the fact about starting a union and in my head I was like this seems really interesting I don't know if we'll be able to do it but this seems really interesting and it definitely seems like something I want to be a part of and for quite a few weeks it was just the three of us and then uh give or take one person depending on the time that we were in and we we started with uh, like lists. We would put down a list of our coworkers, and we would kind of rate them on a scale of like one to ten. Ten being they would definitely be part of the organizing committee, which at the time was me, Harper, and Atulia. And the lowest being they're definitely going to snitch and tell a manager, so we shouldn't be telling them this. And then. Anywhere above a five would be somebody we were like interested in talking to immediately and trying to see if they were interested. And from there, we would assign ourselves a coworker and we would go in and we wouldn't directly ask them if they've heard about a union or if they'd be interested in a union. We would kind of have questions like, what do you think would happen if we went in for a raise and asked for a raise ourselves? And they'd be like, we'd probably get fired. 
And then we would kind of ask, what do you think would happen if we all went in and asked for a raise? And then continued questions like that. And then I believe we would phrase it as uh, we've heard some people talking about a union around here. If you're like interested in like talking about it. And after that, we started adding people to a group chat. And from there, we would start scheduling meetings with everybody. We had our first general meeting back in March, and we had a really good turnout for that. A lot of people came out. We had one scheduled for the morning and one like later in the afternoon. And uh, we had two or three of those before like we were really solidified on being able to vote for a union in which one we wanted. Did the management use like any kind of like, do they get consultants to come to the store and kind of intimidate people or like sort of pressurize people in any way? Yeah. Uh, right after we filed, they brought in, a, she was a general manager at another location and they kind of sent her, she sent her to us for quite a while, for a few weeks. And the field leader came in more often as well. And they would kind of like try and have a nice conversation with you. And then they would just like pop in a question at a random point and ask you if you had heard about the union, because at that point there were posters in the back uh, informing people of what was going on. And if you said no, you hadn't and you tried to like ask them what it is about, they weren't really allowed to tell you anything else about it. So they would kind of dodge every question you have. And then shortly after that, they sent in a recruiter and she would have short meetings with people in the lobby. I think it was kind of like a good cop, bad cop situation because they had a contractor that was hired by Chipotle to kind of do most of the union busting. But the recruiter would take you into the lobby and kind of ask you about yourself and then tell you the benefits uh, that Chipotle offers and whatnot. And then after that, they would typically send a manager out to ask you to go talk to the woman who was hired by Chipotle and she would be in the office and you could decline to do that. And the manager would go away for a while and they would come back a little while later and then basically tell you you have to go talk to her like they would harass you into it until you finally did talk to her and even when you go in there she would specifically ask you do I have your consent to continue and talk to you about this and again if you said no she would let you go but then a few days later they would pressure you into going back in there with her and when you were in there with her she would have a booklet I believe that was uh, from the NLRB. And the funny part was at the very beginning of the book, it like basically stated that this is for the purpose of encouraging people to collectively bargain. But she would go through the entire book and she would nitpick pieces out that would be seen as anti-union or stuff that would be bad if you did unionize. And shortly after that, they would start like spreading white lies or like just actual lies to our, our co-workers. 
I think one of them was actually somebody was told that they would have to pay union dues for the rest of their life if they uh, were to vote yes, which isn't true. It's only if you continue to work at that location. And they also told them that if they transferred, they would still have to pay dues, which also isn't true. And that was uh, a very blatant lie that we were kind of shocked that they actually told somebody. That was another thing. I think we were very good at keeping it like undercover and under wraps about what we were doing. So they didn't have a good gauge of who exactly was in support of the union, even though it was the vast majority of the crew. And we also think that they underestimated us and didn't go as hard on the union busting because we were all like very young, like the general age of our co-workers was anywhere from 16 to 25. Uh, Obviously, there are exceptions, but that was the majority of the crew. So we think they thought that we were just uh, uneducated teenagers that didn't know what we were doing. But little did they know. Is there anything else you want to add? A lot of people did not believe that we could do this. After it was public information that we filed, we got a lot of backlash through social media saying it was a stupid decision and we wouldn't be able to do it. And I think that fueled us more into being, we have to do this to prove people wrong. And the fact that we were able to accomplish it and win by a landslide is kind of an example that we want to set that it is possible and people shouldn't just not try to improve things around them solely because it hasn't been something that's done before. It doesn't seem incredibly realistic, but the truth is it is realistic as long as you like really believe in yourself and put in the effort into making it happen. You can change the world around you no matter how small that effort is. That was Samantha Smith, who helped organize the first ever unionized Chipotle in Lansing, Michigan. It's now September, but the strike wave continues unabated here in Britain. So maybe we can drop the hot strike summer jokes now? Or, well, anyway. It's not so hot anymore, but the strikes definitely continue. This week, 115,000 postal workers from the Royal Mail were on strike, as well as 40,000 BT workers. And you heard about those actions from CWU's Dave Ward on a recent episode. Among the other workers on strike this week were journalists, about whom more later, cleaning workers, university workers, Edinburgh waste and recycling workers, co-op funeral care workers, and I am sure I am missing some others. You can always uh, tweet at me at hashtag belabored if you were on strike this week and I didn't list you. This week, I wanted to talk specifically about the strike at Felix Stowe Port, because regular listeners know that I have been on a kick of logistics labor coverage. And an eight-day strike at the biggest container port in Britain is, well, kind of a big deal. Felix Stowe sees nearly half of British container trade, and Will Dunn at the New Statesman noted, quote, Britain is not just geographically vulnerable to trade disruption. Its economy is also particularly dependent on smooth-running ports. The UK runs a very large trade deficit in goods. We imported £62.6 billion more in goods than we exported from April to June this year, but a big trade surplus. 34.7 billion pounds over the same period in services. This means that a cost such as shipping, which only applies to goods, is disproportionately inflationary for the UK because it pushes up the prices of the things we buy without having an equal effect of the things we sell. End quote. 
So 1,900 members of Unite the Union went on strike last week, though only one of them was captured on camera surfing around the port waving his Unite flag. Seriously, it was the coolest union video I've ever seen. You can find it on my Twitter. Or we'll link to it at the Descent website. The workers are crane drivers, machine operators, and stevedores, among others, and they move more than 4 million containers each year. Last year, they got a sub-inflation pay rise, and this year they were offered one once again, 7% plus a 500-pound one-time bonus, which sounds good until you remember that the cost of heating alone is expected to skyrocket, with the energy price cap raising by 80% by October. Navarra's Polly Smythe visited the port and spoke to striking workers. She writes, quote, Janice Blake, who works as a tug driver and boardman, ensuring that workers get to their workplaces, said, I don't get paid what the media and big bosses make out. We work crap conditions and antisocial hours. I work overtime, and I come back with around 1,600 pounds a month. Even to come here to the picket today, I had to put money on a credit card. The profit money isn't going to the people who are grafting day in and day out. It's going to shareholders overseas, end quote. And another worker told her, quote, all the propaganda the employer puts out just makes my job easier. Before, there were some people on the fence. Now they think I can't trust these people. They're giving millions to shareholders. We want a share of that. We're not being greedy at all. There's a guy in my office using a food bank. End quote. As listeners to this show learned earlier this year from our interviews with Charmaine Schwa and Lala Khalili, just-in-time shipping means that companies operate on razor-thin margins of error, and an eight-day strike that almost completely idled the massive port threatens to have months of repercussions. And as this strike ended without a resolution, the port workers are looking ahead to more strikes. And so, of course, are we. More on this soon. At the EWR9 warehouse in New Jersey, Amazon is installing air conditioning. Normally, this development would not make the news, except for the fact that the AC is being installed after the death of a worker, 42-year-old Reynaldo Mota Frias, on July 13th of cardiac arrest. That happened to be Amazon Prime Day, and it also happened to be over 90 degrees that day. Amazon has claimed that Mota Frias' death was due to personal health issues and had nothing to do with the sweltering heat in the warehouse. Mota Frias' co-workers begged to differ. Shortly before his death, Mota Frias had reportedly told management that he felt unwell, according to interviews with co-workers. One worker told the Daily Beast that, quote, Mota Frias and other workers had pleaded for fans to be placed in their work area hours before he died, unquote. The co-worker suggested that the company tried to downplay his death. Quote, they are trying to say he had a heart attack. Even if that was the case, everybody was saying it was too hot inside to be working, unquote. And even if Motofrias had an underlying health condition, dangerously high temperatures are known to exacerbate those health problems. Witnesses reported seeing the man being picked up and removed from his workstation by Amazon's in-house clinic, Amcare, and his co-workers were told to resume working. Currently, the Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and Health Administration is investigating, but regardless of what the investigation reveals, the agency is known for having fairly anemic enforcement authority. Basically, giant companies will only have to pay a relatively small fine compared to their annual revenue as a penalty for causing a worker's death or grievous injury. The possibility that Motofrias' death may have been heat-related seems to reflect a long-standing pattern of poor safety and lack of regard for workers' health in Amazon warehouses. The primary safety issue in Amazon's frontline operations centers on the intensity and pace of work. The rate of serious work-related injuries at Amazon 
According to one Advocacy Coalition's analysis, the rate of serious work-related injuries at Amazon is about twice the industry average, and Amazon employees are on average forced to take nearly 50% longer to recover, about two months. Amazon has insisted in its public statements that it's constantly making safety improvements, but one of the main reasons that workers have sought to protest and unionize over the past few years has been their belief that the company systematically works people to total exhaustion, often at the expense of their health and mental well-being. And remember that co-workers in New York City began organizing what would eventually become the first ever Amazon labor union back during the first COVID-19 outbreak, when then-Amazon employee Chris Smalls led a protest over safety conditions and was eventually fired. It's not clear if Mota Frias' death will ultimately be officially attributed to a safety failure at Amazon, but for his co-workers and organizers who have been mobilizing for a safer and more humane workplace at Amazon for over two years, the fact that the company is now quietly installing air conditioning in the wake of his death affirms that it was an utterly preventable tragedy. Maybe now more workers will start organizing because they don't want to wait until another tragedy strikes for the company to respond to their warnings. One of the strengths of tech worker organizing has been the ability to put pressure on the tech giants that those workers work for to change policies on what they will make and for whom they will make it. Google workers have successfully pressed the company to drop its Project Maven, an artificial intelligence used to analyze drone footage for the U.S. Defense Department. But this week, Ariel Corin, a Google worker and member of the Alphabet Workers Union, resigned from the company, citing retaliation against her for her advocacy against the company's Project Nimbus a $1.2 billion cloud computing contract between Google, Amazon, and the Israeli government and military. Corin is Jewish and identifies herself in an open letter that she posted on Medium as an anti-Zionist Jew. She writes, quote, Due to retaliation, a hostile environment, and illegal actions by the company, I cannot continue to work at Google and have no choice but to leave the company at the end of this week. Instead of listening to employees who want Google to live up to its ethical principles, Google is aggressively pursuing military contracts and stripping away the voices of its employees through a pattern of silencing and retaliations towards me and many others. Google is weaponizing its diversity, equity, inclusion, and employee research group systems to justify the behavior, so it is no coincidence that retaliation has disproportionately impacted women, queer, and BIPOC employees. I have consistently witnessed that instead of supporting diverse employees looking to make Google a more ethical company, Google systematically silences Palestinian, Jewish, Arab, and Muslim voices concerned about Google's complicity in violations of Palestinian human rights, to the point of formally retaliating against workers and creating an environment of fear. In my experience, silencing dialogue and dissent in this way has helped Google protect its business interests with the Israeli military and government. I encourage Googlers to read up on Project Nimbus and to take action at go slash drop dash Nimbus, end quote. In a press release, Parul Kuhl, the executive chair of the Alphabet Workers Union, said, quote, It is the right of all Alphabet workers to voice our concerns and objections to projects like Nimbus and organize against them internally, completely free from fear of retaliation. Thousands of Google workers have previously organized against military contracts like Project Maven, and we deserve to do the same now and in the future. Ariel should never have faced this retaliation and harassment. She should never have been forced into a position where resigning was her only option, end quote. Corin details in her open letter tensions between the official Jewish Google workers group and Jews who oppose Israeli state violence and oppose Project Nimbus, and that the company treats the official group as the voice for all Jews within the company, regardless of what other Jewish workers like her might have to say. 
After she raised concerns about the group and about the military contract, she says, she was told that while she had been on disability leave, her position at the company had been moved to Sao Paulo, Brazil, effective immediately. She had 17 days to commit to moving or else lose her job. Google says, of course, that it thoroughly investigated Corin's claim of retaliation, but the New York Times itself noted that this is far from the first time an employee has resigned from the company after they were punished for speaking out. Quote, in November 2019, Google fired four employees who had been involved in a variety of organizing efforts at the company. A fifth worker was fired soon after for creating a pop-up message on Google's corporate network, notifying workers of their protected right to organize. The National Labor Relations Board said Google had illegally fired two of the workers and illegally surveilled and retaliated against others, end quote. Many other Google workers spoke out in a video detailing their treatment at the company, including several Palestinian workers who spoke anonymously from fear of, well, you guessed it, more retaliation. And 700 Google workers, as well as over 25,000 others, signed a petition hosted by Jewish Voice for Peace saying, quote, workers have the right to speak up about how their labor is used without fear of losing their jobs, especially when working on unethical contracts that violate human rights, end quote. Sometimes the toughest jobs are the ones that require you to look like you're always having a great time. For strippers, that often means dancing and performing through some pretty annoying, uncomfortable, and sometimes outrageous circumstances, such as an audience member trying to pick you up while you're in the middle of a lap dance, or your boss telling you that you just have to put up with customers touching you inappropriately while on stage, or just having to give a huge chunk of your tips over to the management after every performance. So a group of strippers in Los Angeles has decided to stand up for their rights at work, and they filed for a union election with the National Labor Relations Board. They're part of a group called Strippers United, which is pushing for fair, decent work for strippers of all backgrounds and all types of venues. And they're putting a spotlight on systemic labor issues in an industry that is often overlooked when we think about service and entertainment jobs. Their issues include unsafe working conditions, discrimination, and retaliation for organizing. The strippers at the Star Garden Topless Dive Bar in North Hollywood are organizing with the Actors' Equity Association, which they hope will lay the foundation for organizing strip clubs across the country. To learn more about how strippers are mobilizing, I spoke with Velveeta, an organizer working with Actors' Equity, an activist with Strippers United, and a dancer at the Star Garden. And before I begin, I just want to note that later in the interview, Velveeta references a federal bill called the Earn It Act. That legislation would expand the government's power to crack down on online platforms, supposedly in the name of investigating online sexual abuse and exploitation. But advocates say that it would be a huge blow to online privacy and would damage the ability of sex workers to practice their trades safely. Here's Velveeta. So we have recently partnered, uh, affiliated with Equity, and filed for our official union election Wednesday. And I would say that our union has really existed since the day we walked out on March 18th of this year, because in that moment, we stood together in solidarity. And there were 15 of us that signed the original petition out of, I think, 23 dancers at the time. So a very strong majority. And since then, we've really held together. There's only been like two dancers that have the picket line from that original group and more have signed on. So really, and we had um, pursued unionizing, we were getting ready to pursue 501c5 status with uh, Serpers United. So we were even looking at forming an independent union before equity became an option. 
So from the beginning, our concerns uh, revolved around safety. Uh, We were facing a policy that management told us that we were not allowed to go directly to bouncers if we had an imminent issue with a customer. And we were told to leave the customer, find a manager, and then the manager would determine whether or not to involve security. But from the very first uh, day on the job, I was told that the customer is always right. And we were told to smile and just leave and disengage. And, and to be asked as a, as a sex worker, as a stripper who's putting your body on the line every day and exposing yourself to sexual harassment and assault, that we should smile and, uh, and sort of respect the, like the comfort of the customer who's, who is perpetrating that behavior and, and to prioritize customer comfort and the copacetic environment above all else is really offensive and um, dangerous. So it became an intolerable situation and we banded together and uh, decided we weren't going to take it. And we, uh, we wanted to meet with Jenny as a group and discuss the problems with this policy and two of our coworkers had been fired for bringing up safety concerns, so we weren't comfortable approaching this issue individually. So um, that's really where the organizing originated. And how did you learn about Strippers United, or um, how did you? I guess did you did you know someone who's part of it, or um, were you, uh, or did you know about it before you even started working at this place? Yeah. So uh, actually, Reagan and I had worked with Strippers United on a previous organizing campaign. Um, and I had volunteered with them for a year uh, during 2019, 2020. Um, so we had learned a lot and uh, we wanted to work with Jordan Palmer, who's our current pro bono lawyer and lawyer for Strippers United. So um, so we were connected with resources from the beginning and uh, and knew a bit about organizing and a bit about like strategy for, for getting things um, done. And, and of course, like if we would have been able to have that group meeting at the beginning and had our demands met on the, in the petition, um, this might be going differently, but on the picket line with, you know, seeing this employer completely disregard and um, trample all of our rights, um, all of our labor rights, we did not want to return to the club without a union. And so we decided to up the ante and really um, demand a union contract. For uh, audience members who are like not familiar with what the uh, day-to-day experience is like um, in your job, could you maybe describe what a typical day at work is like and like what kind of interaction do you have typically with both the audience members as well as uh, your managers? How do you get paid? What kind of administrative things do you have to deal with uh, just to make sure that, you know, you're paid on time and that um, you have your your basic needs met? Yeah. So at this particular club, a shift was about six hours. Um, You'd show up, change in the dressing room, and then you're working the floor. You're uh, talking to customers, getting to know them, um, having conversation asking at some point, you know, would you like to go for a lap dance? And then so you're giving lap dances, and then you're also performing on stage. um, And there's a rotation. 
And in this particular club, we were not paid wages. We were entitled to keep our tips, but the club took half of our lap dance earnings. So a lap dance is sold for $40 for two songs. And so we're getting 20 of that and dancing for $10 a song. So practically the way that all of this is set up, in order to make any real money from lap dances, you have to be tipped at the end of the dance by the customer. So like with other workers that earn money primarily through tips, you are more vulnerable to sexual harassment and assault because you have to appease the customer um, in order to be tipped by the customer. And that was what was happening, especially because this club was not enforcing any sorts of standards or rules for customers. In order to be tipped on stage, you know, sometimes a customer would be holding the money at the tip rail and want to put it into your clothes. Um, And uh, sometimes if you get close enough to the tip rail, a customer would touch you inappropriately. And at other places, uh, touching is not allowed on stage, period. And when I worked at this club on the in the first time, uh, which was five years ago, it was my I actually worked at Star Garden um, as a baby stripper. It was my first club. Worked there for a year. Was fired because I brought up wage uh, theft and misclassification and late fees. But anyway, back then the owners had strict policies: no touching on stage and no touching during lap dances. So we could still earn those tips and be entertainers and do our job. But we had the infrastructure to step in and enforce those boundaries for us. And we didn't have to police our own boundaries and try to keep ourselves safe. So in this situation, we were dealing with a lot of unwanted touching on stage, unwanted touching on the floor, um, aggressive like slapping and uh, of our butts and like just like really physical contact in the lap dance area. Girls were getting picked up in the lap dance area. I was personally, personally picked up. At one point in a dance with a customer that was being pretty rough and afterwards the security guard told me that I shouldn't let customers pick me up, even though he was watching the whole time and it was his job really to step in and stop that. Um, But our security guards were told by management not to get involved and that management was the one that would be coordinating all of this, but they were watching and doing nothing because their priorities were with the customer. So that's kind of how it worked. And that was... The, the working conditions. Would you say that this, uh, I know you you compared this with, with previous clubs you'd worked at, but would you say that level of sort of physical aggression is uh, typical or was this, was Stargarden especially uh, egregious in terms of what they permitted the audience members to do? Oh, it was definitely um, egregious. I have felt like relatively safer in every other club I've worked at because management's policies were more strict and bouncers um, were actually looking out for us and would, would back us up. And, you know, I'm speaking from a privileged like position. I'm a white like dancer. Um, So like, I especially felt like safe at other clubs, but I know that that's not necessarily the case for, um, dancers of color and uh, dancers that are gender nonconforming and things like that. So I just want to acknowledge that up front. Um, but this was this is definitely an extreme case. And what happens when uh, this behavior is tolerated in the club is customers are watching each other 
So it compounds itself. And then the customers who are respectful are turned off by seeing this happen and seeing management do nothing about it. And so good customers are more likely to spend less time in the club. And so that, that really happened because, um, and, and Reagan was fired early on um, and really her firing kicked off our organizing and, and Reagan had brought in a lot of good customers. So she's been dancing for 10 years. She has a following on social media. Um, and after she was fired, those customers were so angry that they stopped showing up. And they were also complaining uh, in the club about like other customer behavior. So um, it's really important to, you know, value your dancers and um, because they're the ones bringing the customers in. And to prioritize their safety and uh, to create an actual respectful environment. In general, uh, would you say that in clubs, when you know when when folks don't have a union representing them, as is the case in, in most clubs, um, are workers like intimidated about trying to call out problematic behavior or abusive behavior or going to their managers and you know trying to challenge something? Um, is there a sense of kind of being maybe either underwear or maybe intimidated to speak up for uh, oneself because you know, you're afraid of being fired or you're just afraid of negative consequences in the job. Yeah, totally. That's like pervasive, I would say, in the industry. Dancers are treated as disposable. We're told to move on, find a different club if you don't like it here. And like there is no job protection. We have no respect within the club from managers and, and yeah, you're, you're definitely opening yourself up to retaliation whenever you want to stand up for your right to safety or any other right in the workplace. And dancers are, I think just now learning their rights, like just in this, in this one action um, and organizing drive, like we have filed uh, five ULPs, um, three of which are seeking to, get the jobs back for dancers that were retaliated against for bringing up safety concerns. Um, So I really hope that our campaign also brings awareness to the legal recourse that we have when, when these sorts of things happen. Yeah. In terms of your legal rights, is it different in California now because of AB5? Were you actual payroll employees? Were you considered independent contractors? Like uh, what was the structure of your job like? And does that ever complicate things? Yeah, so it's an interesting situation in California. I actually sued Sargarden after I was fired and uh, received a settlement. And at that time in 2018, we didn't have AB5, and we were uh, the state was using a different test for employment status that was not as direct and stringent. But I still, in my settlement uh, mediation sessions with the judge. Uh, the judge was telling me, and this is before AB5, this is before Dynamex, that these club owners will never, you know, be able to prove that strippers aren't employees, even under the the old test. Um, that he's that he had heard like a million different crazy uh, ways that club owners try to justify misclassifying their dancers, um, and there just has never been oversight, and there still really isn't oversight and enforcement. And then when AB5 was passed, it was interesting that the clubs responded the way they did because there is still no oversight and there won't be until we stand up and assert our rights. So 
in my eyes, I see it as like clubs seize the opportunity with AB5 making the news and, and gig worker and this whole conversation around um, the drawbacks of employee status and the, the, the narrative that was being pushed by Uber and Lyft. And I think clubs seized on that and used it as an opportunity to fire their, their black and um, brown dancers, their trans dancers, their um, disabled dancers or, or dancers belonging to other marginalized group. They want, you know, to whitewash their clubs um, they used it as an opportunity to double down on wage theft and to say, well, you know, because the government is uh, taking our money now, we have to enforce these dance quotas and you have to sell, you know, so many dances. And then we're going to take all of that money because now we have to pay your wages. So basically you're paying your own wages. Um, dancers are making less money now. And yeah, and they've, they've succeeded in blaming AB5 for that. They're still like there's still clubs operating the old way. Like Star Garden offered you two contracts. They said you can either be an employee, in which case you have to uh, give us the first hundred dollars that you would have have taken home from your lap dances because we're paying you minimum wage, or you can be a an independent contractor. You can lease the space and we'll just take half of your lap dances. We won't enforce a quota, um, even though they did like basically enforce a quota. So they basically make the choice for you. And because there's no oversight, they still get away with misclassifying dancers and clubs continue to do that. There's no one cracking down on it. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting just to see how AB5 has played out in different industries. And it seems like there's been kind of a mixed response because even if you want the law to work, you know, you want people to adhere to the letter of the law. Like you said, if there's no enforcement, then... um, it seems like it can also become a pretext for bosses just, you know, squeezing workers even harder. Yeah. I mean, the impact has been tremendously negative, like on our industry. And the only way we can fight back against that is to unionize, to organize, to stand up for ourselves, um, to stand up together in solidarity because we're powerless as individuals. And that's the only way we've ever been able to enforce our rights. If we want schedule flexibility, if we want fair uh, wages and fair, um, you know, some dancers don't care about wages, but if you want to make a fair amount from your lap dances and have some say in that, maybe if you want to have some say in what you charge for a lap dance or have some autonomy over how much you demand in like a tip for a lap dance and not be penalized for that, like there's, you can kind of, you can bargain for anything in your contract. Um, so like, if you want any of those things, like we can't depend on our employers, even when we were, when it was under the table and when we were classified as independent or misclassified as independent contractors, um, you still have no say over that. The club is setting the policies. So really the only way we're going to get what we want is unless, you know, unless you're, you feel like you're in the good graces of the employer and you want to depend on the employer's goodwill and, like you're still at their mercy. So it's, it's upon us to organize. When we're talking about organizing both, you know, in California and outside of California, um, how did the pandemic change things? Uh, I imagine that clubs were closed for a long time. So were folks just out of work for a long time? Um, Were they able to do work online as uh, some kind of substitute? And, And how did it make 
sort of the work of organizing and connecting with your fellow workers difficult or maybe easier? I don't know. Yeah. So, um, so actually the pandemic is what ended our organizing campaign at the other club, Reagan and I, and it was because there was so many more variables introduced about, because we were ready and basically to file for an election. And uh, then there were, you know, variables about, is the club going to shut down permanently? Is, um, are we even considered to be like working? Like, how do we prove that we are like workers if, if we aren't actively working, <laughs> which I, I guess is like, uh, yeah. So there's obvious complications when like a business has to shut down when you're going into a union election. So, so all of those sorts of things, uh, put a kibosh on that, but, um, strippers started to organize into collectives to put on group shows on zoom. And so I was involved with cyber clown girls uh, that Reagan founded along with uh, three other dancers. And those shows were super successful. And we really learned that we could come together, support ourselves. Uh, We didn't have to work under the um, eyes of uh, managers and have to play by their rules. We could get super creative in our performances. And we really created like a brand of super fun and creative stuff. So, and that has carried into this and, and um, we have into the future and into now because we've started a, uh, a group called Stripper Co-op where we're actively pursuing a worker-owned um, cooperative for strip shows. And we ultimately want to open a brick and mortar strip club that's worker-owned. And so uh, that, that also plays into our organizing strategy because if we're organizing a club and a dancer uh, is fired, um, they will have a place to work. So it can also become this like hub of organizing activity. And so we're really excited about that project too. So, uh, so yeah, it's, I mean, the, the pandemic did create the conditions for worker solidarity. Uh, I don't know at what point clubs were allowed to reopen in California, but were the public health concerns and were the safety concerns in the job um, something that kind of galvanized workers during the height of the pandemic? Because um, when I've spoken with workers in other industries, they talk about how they really started to intensify their organizing when they realized that their lives were at stake or that they were being exposed to a deadly disease at work. So were the safety issues um, involved with being a stripper at a, at a club, presumably where you're sort of in close contact with people all the time, was that ever an issue? Um, I think like I was concerned about it. I think other dancers were as well. Um, but I think there was more of like a desperation to work because strippers, uh, because we've been misclassified, were excluded from unemployment, so had no safety net. And so I think a lot of us were just really grateful to be able to work again. Um, so it didn't, it didn't kind of play out like that as, as much in our industry. Um, but I, I have heard of some pretty crazy setups, like one club down in Orange County um, set up the strip club in the, in a parking garage um, so like, <laughs> like, uh, to, to meet like the, the health standards and, 
And I, I just like imagine giving a lap dance next to a sign that talks about California prop, whatever. That's like, there's carcinogens, like, <laughs> so right. it's just kind of like crazy what was going on. So it's definitely not to say that the industry was, was safe at all. I just think uh, that dancers prioritize the income at the time. So when we talk about the future work of Strippers United, how do you think this union victory will translate into your work maybe outside of California? Or uh, do you hope it will maybe change public perceptions um, about your industry and your work? I was looking at uh, the Strippers United um, website had uh, a lot of a lot of sort of disclaimers in terms of how willing they are to talk to the media. So I'm just thinking about you now that this campaign has uh, gotten a lot of attention, how do you hope that uh, people will start to look at your job and, and look at your you and your fellow workers differently? Definitely. And I just think it's uh, so important that we are standing up in defense of our jobs and asserting the value of our jobs and we're fighting for better working conditions because we love and care about our work and we want to continue in our work. All of that is really pushing back against the perception that it's like an interim thing that uh, you only go into it if you're, if you're desperate or like you want to get out as fast as you can because it's like all of these things that have to do with the stigma around it. And partnering with equity has been really interesting and great because um, there has been important conversations happening that have actually been initiated by equity members about the hypocrisy that we see in our society where um, actors in, you know, film actors too, and this extends, you know, to movies and uh, portrayals in the media. And, but um, for three day performers, we've had actors step up who've said, I've portrayed strippers and sex workers doing exactly the same work on stage, you know, as a performer. And I am, you know, given the prestige and the union contract and the protections and the wages and, and all of these benefits. Whereas the the workers that we are basing our performances off of, who are doing the real work are not receiving the same protection. And also emphasizing the commonalities in our work that, you know, strippers are also live entertainment professionals working on stages, inhabiting personas on the floor, you know, uh, improving with customers. <laughs> I know, I know strippers who like pretend they're like, you know, European or like British or something like when they're working, which is like putting on accents and stuff like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, it, it really doesn't end. I mean, it's, it is absolutely an entertainment job. It's a performance job. So it's been really cool to see those conversations happening. And I think it's really important. And yeah, so we are just, I think we're really well positioned to make some headway um, with the stigma. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to get some information out, um, you know, as our campaign continues about the rights that every stripper in the U.S. has to unionize. It's not just us in California because of AB5. It's like everyone has the right to unionize, even if you're misclassified in another state. So we're hoping we can inspire some more organizing. We're hoping we can support others in organizing and set some standards in our contract uh, for the industry. And yeah, so we, uh, yeah, we're, we're optimistic and motivated, very motivated. Strippers United is also working on the national level um, to oppose the 
earn it legislation, right? Um, which I think is uh, for, for some of our podcast listeners may um, be familiar with SESTA, which um, was a bill that uh, went through a couple of years ago. Um, similar ways of, I guess, cracking down on, on sex work in general, um, and maybe, uh, I guess, certain industries um, directly. So what do you see as the risks of, of that legislation? And what is the union's role in raising awareness about it? I haven't been involved with Strippers United's organizing around Earn It Act because I left before that got going. But just speaking to like SESTA-FOSTA, those laws have harmed sex workers like so incredibly because sex workers aren't able to communicate and share information online. Sex workers are always are rampantly like deplatformed on like social media sites and so it just suppresses our ability to share information and really and share solidarity basically and support each other. So I guess, you know, that's an, a way that it impacts like organizing, but it, you know, the, the direct result is to impact our safety and um, the, just the rates that sex workers have been killed since um, these laws have gone into effect is horrible. I, I, and there's really no words for it, but like, you're talking about human lives here. Um, so, so yeah, it's a very important issue. And, um, and it's something that I'm, that, that unions should address just because it's a human rights issue, but then also because it does affect worker organizing too, in that aspect. This particular union is, is obviously new, um, but uh, we know that it's uh, not the first uh, strip club in the U.S. to unionize. There was one back in the 90s. And and I guess this is part of a larger movement. So do you see yourselves as part of like a, a global sex workers' rights movement? And I guess, um, what do you think about the, the global picture in terms of organizing both uh, strippers as well as um, other, yeah, other workers in this field who uh, may be dealing with uh, you know, different sets of laws in different countries, and I guess, you know, trying to uh, reach out for solidarity uh, internationally. Yeah. So um, just in the U.S., there were, there are a network of um, stripper strikes that began around the time of the um, George Floyd protests in 2020, um, and before that, that are Black-led and have been doing really incredible organizing work to end discrimination and racism um, in strip clubs, along with fighting for other basic safety and fighting for just the uplift of marginalized communities within sex work. So uh, I want to acknowledge that and, and uplift that that work because it's really incredible work. Like um, there's a there's a nonprofit that began as a stripper strike in Portland um, that's called Haymarket Coal Collective. And in two years, they have raised through grant funding and individual donations over a million dollars and distributed that to Black and um, Indigenous transgender sex workers. So that, I mean, that's just like monumental work. It's really, it's really amazing. So, I mean, that's an example of like, organizing in our recent past. Um, there was also the New York stripper strike in 2017 um, that was that was addressing racism in clubs and like the hiring of, 
you know, light skinned bartenders who were encroaching on the earnings of and encroaching on the jobs of like of black strippers. So that organizing work is just really incredible. So yeah, New York stripper strike, Philadelphia stripper strike, Stilettos Inc. There's uh, Artist Revolt that's based in LA, the Chicago stripper strike, the Colorado sex workers, black sex worker collective, I believe it's called. Um, so there's a lot of like, if you just like search on Instagram, like any of those usernames or or search online for different stripper strikes or on, on Instagram for different stripper strikes, hashtag stripper strike, you can find uh, some more information about just like various activities going on. And there's been organizing that I know of in Berlin for sex workers and decriminalization. Um, in in the UK, there was like a, a movement in Scotland to make strip clubs illegal or something. And I haven't, I have not looked deeper into it, but um but I, I believe that they've made progress to, to stop that. So, um, and Strippers United has been in touch with these international movements as well. And is and also with um, some of the domestic stripper strikes. So yeah, we're, we're doing the best that we can to connect the dots and, um, and, you know, stripper strike no-ho, which is what like the star garden union drive went by initially and, is um, we're we're working on changing the name now because we've realized that that name has basically like appropriated the work done by some other previous or the other not previous but ongoing strikes in other parts of the country. We are working on on doing a better job of of uh, of uplifting those those movements. Um, being better allies to black, um, specifically black and uh, indigenous and trans sex workers um, and other marginalized identities. So, so it's, it's a journey for everyone. Um, And we, at the end of the day, we all care about the same issues and we all are fighting for, for the same thing. And lastly, just out of curiosity, um, do you know what the response has been um, from the general public, like the community surrounding the club or the folks who uh, actually are in the audience? Um, have, has, have they said anything to you or um, was anyone saying anything to you when you were out on strike or did your walkout or on the picket line? And, and I guess also along with that, um, for um, our listenership, um, if they want to get involved and show solidarity, uh, you know, at the next you know, local stripper strike. Um, how do they find out more and how can they support you and your coworkers? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, the support we've gotten has been really amazing. Um, and we're so grateful for like the coverage that we've gotten in the media and, you know, again, to acknowledge the privilege that we have as a mostly white group. Um, we've, we've haven't dealt with like really any shade in the media or, any kind of like disparagement in the media and have been taken, you know, very seriously. Whereas other, you know, black led, the other black led movements haven't received as much attention and deference and everything in the media. So um, just to highlight that off the bat, um, but we are grateful for the coverage we've gotten and our, our support in the local community has been really uplifting and amazing. Um, we have so many customers that have stood with us on the picket line sometimes, some of them every night that we're out there and doing other supportive things like cooking for us, bringing us food. 
So that's been amazing. And just like the the money we've been able to raise to support ourselves um, with our action fund, we've raised over $50,000 over the course of the six months um, to, to go towards our like rent and basic needs. And that's just incredible for a strike for any strike funded for any labor action. And, um, and I shouldn't say like strike fund because it's not replacement wages, but it is, it is mutual aid going to, to help us out. It's been so, so amazing to, to really have this community that has, has grown on the picket line. Like, like we have our customers and our coworkers, but now we have people from the local neighborhood. We have people from different organizations and that are coming to help us. And we've, it's the picket line has become like a, like a cafe almost where people talk about labor issues and, and talk about like local issues and just, um, discuss like labor, you know, rights and like our work and just connect with each other. And so it's become this really cool nexus. And, um, and I'm just like, and, and just the way that, that we have proven through our movement and through our sidewalks, you know, I call it sometimes the sidewalk strip club or the picket line, uh, that our customers connect with us and we have meaningful relationships and those relationships are what keep people coming back. Even if we're not even giving lap dances or dancing on stage, like they're coming back to spend time with us and to support us because we provide such a valuable sort of like relationship in the club. And then it continues on outside the club. So I, I just am so, I've been so um, uplifted by, by that whole experience. And yeah, so to, to support us, you know, go onto our Instagram page. It's at stripper strike. No ho. Um, we might be changing the name. Like I said, well, we will be changing the name soon. So I, I, that handle might change, but you can also find a link to our, our social media on um, strippersunited.org. And there's a link to our action fund, I believe there at that website as well. And that's just a, a great way to support us directly to keep us going and um, you can sign a, a petition that we a public petition signing on to our safety petition that we delivered to star garden at the beginning um, and yeah so so that's like those are some really some really great ways to support us you're listening to belabored a descent magazine podcast links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org That was Velveeta, Star Garden dancer, Strippers United activist, and unionist. And now we turn to everyone's favorite segment, ARG. I wish I'd written that. One of the many strikes this week in England is one of journalists, specifically journalists with the Reach media chain, which owns several tabloids, The Mirror, The Record, Express, and Star. The strikers are members of the National Union of Journalists, and so the piece I chose for ARG this week is about both journalism and unions. By Conrad Landon at The Guardian, the piece is titled, Let's Hope the Strike by Reach Journalists Reshapes Our Media Landscape for the Better. Landon writes, quote, Journalists often face accusations of being out of touch with ordinary people's concerns, and instead focusing on the bubbles of politics, big business, and celebrity intrigue. 
But when it comes to the cost of living crisis, Mirror journalists speak from experience. With inflation at 10.1% and a final pay offer from management of just 3%, staff at REACH voted to strike. Today is the first of four days of strike action organized by the National Union of Journalists, though more dates could be added if management fails to better its offer. As well as a paltry pay offer, REACH journalists faced the indignity of a 10% pay cut at the start of the pandemic, now restored, and the closure of many regional offices, forcing journalists in the East Midlands, for instance, to commute to Birmingham. Much has been made of the spectacle of journalists at the anti-union express downing tools. Earlier this month, the express hailed new anti-union laws mooted by would-be Prime Minister Liz Truss as a masterstroke, and the paper regularly screeches about militant union barons. It's tempting to ask if those who write anti-union copy deserve support and solidarity, but transforming our media landscape is a necessity, and it starts with supporting journalists struggling for better pay and conditions. End quote. In a context of declining trust in media, down in Britain to 36% from 50% just in 2016, and of course, the decline of media in general, with pressures to do more with less, low pay, endless cutbacks, job losses, etc., etc., you all know the drill. The journalist strike puts reporters on the line alongside postal workers, port workers, train workers, and bin workers, all of whom continue their strike action and all of whom provide vital public services. Landon continues, quote, Reach is just one of many newspaper groups to champion a strategy that relegates original reporting to a shrinking band of veterans. New recruits are instead expected to rehash stories from rival papers alongside press releases and agency copy. Such practices can breed resentment between print journalists who feel their reputation is being degraded by clickbait and their digital colleagues. But at today's picket line outside Reach's Glasgow offices, staff from the Daily Record and Scottish Daily Express stood alongside digital journalists from Glasgow Live and local democracy reporters whose jobs are funded by the BBC. Just as no one goes into journalism to earn big bucks, that's for sure, no one, at least no one I've ever encountered, goes into journalism to kick down at society's most vulnerable. But once in post, career progression depends on impressing managers themselves employed by a decreasing number of billionaires and giant conglomerates, end quote. Landon reminds us that unions and print media, not just the reporters, but even the printers, have a long history of challenging management power and fighting over the content of what is printed. He points to the refusal of Sun printers to handle a front page comparing union leader Arthur Scargill to Adolf Hitler in 1984. Something, of course, that is now impossible because Rupert Murdoch crushed the print unions through a lockout in 1986. But today, with journalists at right and left-leaning tabloids alike on the picket lines, perhaps there can be some sort of revival of this tactic. Certainly in the States, with the wave of journalist unions in recent years, we've also seen improvements in labor coverage, with more and more reporters and editors out there who know what it's like to fight collectively with our coworkers. Not just over so-called bread-and-butter issues, though obviously the cost of living is on everyone's mind but also for better and more just news coverage. Landon notes, quote, As few as one in four British journalists are members of the NUJ, so a realistic challenge to management seems like a distant prospect. But victory in the fight for better pay and conditions would make it less distant through raising morale, making the case for better workers' rights, and turning the tide on editorial cuts that prevent journalists from doing what they do best. My pick for ARG is... Inside the Kafkaesque Process for Determining Who Gets Federal Disability Benefits by Mark Bedencourt in the September-October issue of Mother Jones. Now, you probably hear all the time about how hard it can be to land a good job and how many times people get rejected as they search for employment. But imagine applying for the right to not work, or rather, to prove that you can't work. This is the central challenge in the bizarre dystopian world of disability insurance. 
Even though a little bit is deducted from every paycheck to pay for it, disability insurance probably isn't something most Americans think that deeply about until it's time for them to use it. And that's usually when the nightmare begins. Run by the Social Security Administration, the disability insurance program can only be described as a bureaucratic labyrinth in which administrative law judges seem ready to pick apart every claim and argue that no, this person can actually work and is therefore ineligible for disability benefits. But in court writes, quote, a disability appeal hearing can seem surreal to an outsider. Unlike a court proceeding, it involves little storytelling or persuasion, and it's only glancingly related to a claimant's experience of impairment. Quote, disabled is a legal term, not really a medical term, unquote, says Amy Versillo, a vocational counselor and longtime SSA vocational expert. The government's definition of a disability requiring compensation is agonizingly specific, focusing on the minutiae of how an impairment changes a person's capacity to, say, reach forward, bend over, or lift 10 pounds. ALJs, administrative law judges, are tasked only with determining whether the claimant fits that definition. The objective fairness of the outcome depends entirely on how well the judge, vocational expert, and claimant's representative, if they have one, it needn't be a lawyer, can describe the claimant's disability in bureaucratic doublespeak, unquote. The judge is supposed to review a claim against the research of vocational experts who burrow into a Depression-era book called the Dictionary of Occupational Titles, which describes in detail how nearly 13,000 jobs from tire mold engraver to coyote hunter are done. That granularity has made the DOT the central resource for SSA disability adjudication since the program's inception in the 1950s. But it's also made this book increasingly difficult to adapt to the changing economy. Most of its job descriptions haven't been updated since 1977, and none since 1991, unquote. So basically, you'll only find pre-internet jobs there. The hearing process is basically where common sense goes to die. But in court highlights the case of Albert Diaz, who was denied disability repeatedly, even though when he appeared at his hearing, he clearly displayed his disability. His right leg and arm were severely debilitated due to a major workplace injury, falling down the stairs in the apartment building where he worked as a maintenance director. But he had to appeal several times because the vocational expert kept making some convoluted arguments citing all the hypothetical jobs a worker like him could do with his limited mobility, such as surveillance video monitor. The financial strain of the years Diaz spent wending through the claims process led his family to lose their home and file for bankruptcy. Bedencourt writes, quote, it's not an uncommon outcome. From 2014, to 2019, 48,000 applicants waiting for an appeal decision had to do the same. The bank foreclosed on the Diaz's home, and they moved into an apartment with their three youngest children. Quote, I had no choice, he told me, unquote. Although Diaz eventually prevailed with the help of a lawyer who knows the ins and outs of the system, the whole process took a deep toll on Diaz's family life, and he and his wife eventually split up. It seems like the only way to beat the system is to get a lawyer who's every bit as cynical as the administrative law judge and can game the system. Bettencourt notes that Diaz's lawyer used to represent the SSA before switching sides. Quote, instead of challenging what he calls the system's quote-unquote fictitious framework, he focuses on establishing that the judge or vocational expert has made a technical mistake. He says, quote, even though the current system is a lie and a fantasy and based on nothing, you can force your client to win if you know what you're doing, unquote. So I guess if you can afford a savvy enough lawyer, you might get your benefits. But when you step back and just take a look at what the disability benefit system has become, you realize how incredibly absurd it all is. How did a public benefit aimed at supporting the most vulnerable members of society evolve into a bureaucratic monstrosity that seems designed to dehumanize, humiliate, and impoverish those very same members of society? 
Fundamentally, this is about the state determining arbitrarily who has the ability to work, and by extension, who must work in order to survive. So despite conservatives criticizing the disability benefits program as overly generous and rife with fraud, what you actually have here is a system that's so skeptical of people's claims that it treats everyone as if they're just trying to cheat. And the bureaucracy is so mired in its own litigious myopia that it has somehow lost sight of its original mission. Benin Court writes, quote, reversing a denial of benefits can take years, even for an experienced lawyer. A 2014 study found that more than 60% of claimants denied at the hearing level were eventually awarded benefits. That's partly because people's disabilities often get worse over time, but also because the government is so hard to convince. That skepticism is predicated on assuring that taxpayer money goes where it's deserved, with the expectation that well-intentioned experts fluent in the language of bureaucracy will make the decision, unquote. But ultimately, this isn't so much about objective bureaucrats protecting the taxpayer as it is about making people go through hell to prove that they deserve a life free of the burden of work. Our society wasn't built for those people. As if living with a disability weren't hard enough, an institution that was supposed to provide economic security to the needy is now set up to ensure that as few people as possible are ever relieved of their duty to produce value under capitalism. And that's it for this episode of Belabored. Thanks again to Colin Kinneborough and Natasha Lewis for making us sound good. And again, if you want to support our independent journalism on underreported labor issues, please consider supporting us through our Patreon at patreon.com slash belabored. Remember, you can get all of our archived episodes at dissentmagazine.org. And we always welcome your feedback, comments, and questions. We definitely want to hear from you if you are a Chipotle worker or any other kind of fast food worker trying to organize your workplace, or if you're a sex worker looking to form a union with your coworkers to improve your working conditions. And if you're a listener from across the Atlantic, we definitely want to hear from you about what the labor landscape looks like over there. You can reach us by email at belaboredatdescentmagazine.org, or you can find us on the Twitters at hashtag belabored. Talk to you in two weeks. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belaboured. <laughs>